Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys had a good weekend spending time with your family, friends, watching a little bit of the ATP Newport and also ATP Cordea Open as well. There's been a lot of news or certain news that has been uh, popping up within our political societal realm, but also within the tennis realm as well. In terms of political societal news, we can get into Jen Psaki slash Joe Biden saying that social media should ban accounts that spread misinformation. We can also get into George W. Bush saying that the Af- Afghanistan withdrawal is bad, citing progressive viewpoints, which is often uh, a little weird. Uh, we can also get into Bill Burr trashing CNN for its Trump coverage and just how great it was and how hilarious it was to hear him uh, delve into the thoughts of what he believes as to what's plaguing American culture. In terms of uh, tennis news, we can obviously get into the Nordia Open as Casper Casper Ruud beats Federico Correa 6-3-6-2. We can also get into Stefano Tsitsipas wanting coaching in tennis, as well as Dominic Thiem defending his U.S. Open title, or can Dominic Thiem defend his U.S. Open title? And we can conclude with my weekly pick. But where we'll start for today is obviously Novak Djokovic deciding to play the Olympics. So if you have having uh, checked it out on Wednesday, Novak Djokovic had uh, decided and made a public announcement that he will be playing the Olympics this coming or this this month in the next week or so. And it was a very lengthy uh, note that he gave. And o- overall, it was a nice heartfelt note. He decided that you know he wanted to make. Serbia proud. He wanted to make his family proud, his country proud, and that's one of the reasons why he wanted to play for the Olympics, which is a nice little touch to it, I would say. Overall, very short, sweet uh, uh, letter that he made. Uh, go check it out on your like socials or whatnot. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, overall, this is the thing with Novak Djokovic. Uh, do I think he will win the Olympics? Yes. Um, and I don't think it's going to be like competitive as a lot of people will say. I, I just don't. And it's not because no disrespect to any of the players, but I do think that it will be a one race, just a one man race towards the goal because a lot of these players are absent. A lot of these top tennis pros have decided to not play, have decided to withdraw. Federer, Nadal, some of them, uh, Kyrgios, and some of them state how it's a little too close to Wimbledon. Others state that. Uh, there, there is no fan appreciation or fan aspect to the Olympics because of coronavirus in Tokyo and because they're uh, they're a little bit cautious about the variant. Uh, so obviously it, it is a bummer to not see that many players uh, compete for the Olympics because it is a once in every four year sport. But overall, Novak Djokovic has decided to uh, play. I think uh, I think Stefano Tsitsipas is also playing, so it might be. If I had to, if they're not in the same bubble, because I haven't really checked up on the bubble in terms of in terms of the bracket, I would say more more fitting term, not bubble bracket. In America, we call it bubble, but uh, for the NCAA. But anyways, and it makes more sense to say bracket. So I, I haven't really checked up on the bracket just yet. It, but if Novak Djokovic is number one and Stefano Tsitsipas is number two, it's going to be Novak Djokovic one, two, and they're just going to move into and progress further and further deeper into the tournament both of them and they'll probably play each other for the final on the hard court so i don't know what to really draw into because i do think that novak Djokovic will win um pretty decidedly 
but make sure you check out that match if that match does happen because that will probably be that will probably be one of the more competitive matches that you will see at Tokyo. Um, again, I'm not so sure about other players, but it does seem like a lot of these players are going to be absent from play, and it's going to really damage the product of tennis. And you're not you're not going to see a great product on that surface or on in that occasion as opposed to the four other Grand Slams. You know, treat it like how players used to treat the French Open back in the 90s and 80s, right? Pete Sampras was notorious for skipping out of the French Open because he sort of viewed the French Open as the lesser of the four Grand Slams. And not only that, but he was also pretty not as good as he was on clay as he was on grass. So, you know, sort of view this in the same way as, say, a French Open. I learned that from from one of the commenters uh, on my Novak Djokovic uh, video that I upload on my Clips channel, if you haven't checked that out, uh, that apparently like a lot of these players uh, did not really value the French Open, which now is sort of weird because now Paris is sort of like the mecca of culture and having good taste and whatnot. And obviously that de- definitely does play in terms of marketing yourself into a more sort of ubiquitous individual and more of of a sort of cultured individual as well, more specifically. So obviously, you know, it's going to be really weird to see a lot of these players not compete. Uh, but overall, at the end of the day, Novak is probably going to win and he's going to go for the Golden Slam for the U.S. Open. Um, I don't know what to say to those who aren't fans of Novak Djokovic, but overall, that's something that is definitely going to be a factor, you know. So I think the Olympics are in like, it's happening this this next week, probably on Saturday, Sunday. So uh, it's going to be quite interesting to see how overall, uh, how Novak Djokovic can, you know, prove himself. You know, I, I really don't know how anybody can really be Novak Djokovic. At the end of the day, Novak Djokovic, in my opinion, has only one person to beat, and it's himself. You know, so if he puts a ball and shoves it through a line judge's throat, as Andy Murray would say, uh, that's probably one of the main reasons how he could lose in the Olympics. But overall, I, I just don't see Novak losing in, in that way. I just don't see him losing to any other player because of just how dominating he's been ever since, say, the French Open, since since the French Open. I would say the Australian Open better. Ever since Dominic Team went down, it, it was sort of going towards Novak Djokovic's direction. So yeah, obviously, I think Novak Djokovic will win uh, pretty decidedly. Um, I don't know if I'm going to make Novak Djokovic Olympic win equals GOAT. I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching thin, thin with the titles here. You know, those those are the titles that usually get me like clicks. Uh, so, but I don't know if I'm going to do that if Novak Djokovic wins. But uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see um, just how not only depleted the field is, but also if Novak Djokovic is able to win in a decided manner. Because if any if, if he still wins, but if he makes it competitive or if another person makes it competitive, that might be a fail on Novak because he is the front runner. He is the favorite. If he doesn't win in decided ways and in a decided fashion, and if, he, if there are multiple tiebreakers, not only within the final, but just overall in the entire tournament, a lot of even if he does win, it could still be a fail on Novak's part because he should he should not be losing tiebreakers to these like other players that have not really been in the thick of it or haven't really been in that big of a stage. So overall, uh, Novak Djokovic uh, deciding to play, I think that's great. And um, if anything, I think he's going to win pretty decidedly as well. So uh, get, just get ready for that. All right, let's get into our next uh, topic. Uh, which is, can Dominic Team 
defend the U.S. Open title. Obviously, this is sort of a prediction. Obviously, the U.S. Open's within a month away. I know this is a little bit too far ahead, and I'm a little bit of a, I don't I wouldn't call it Monday morning quarterbacking because that's the Monday morning after like a Sunday night game, but I'll call this like a Wednesday night quarterbacking, uh, you know, segment because like I do think that it is a, a, a little bit important to at least discuss this in full detail uh, because Dominic team has definitely regressed since his U.S. Open title win last year. Um, he won against Sasha Zverev in 2020, and a lot of people view this as one of the best matches of that year. I used to believe that, but now looking back at it, especially that fifth set, I mean, Sasha Zverev looked aghast. He did not look like himself. He, he was not composed at all. There are certain times where he will be serving his first or second set, and he would just absolutely not give his 100% effort into it. It definitely did feel like he was, I wouldn't say injured, but it, did, it definitely did feel like there was some other factor going on with Sasha Zverev that allowed Dominic Team to win. And again, ever since he's won that U.S. Open title, he's definitely regressed. I mean, if you look at that French Open loss in the first round to Pablo Andujar, I mean, that was crushing for Dominic Team. And during that post-match presser, he was like, yeah, I mean, I've been having PTSD uh, for, from that U.S. Open win. Yeah, I mean, those, those are his words, not mine. And, you know, I, I, he said that that U.S. Open win definitely did change his pers- perspective on tennis and how he was afraid to live up to the height, which he kind of did over the next year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that loss was definitely soul-crushing for Dominic Team, And I had, and I knew a lot of people that counted on Dominic Team to really be successful at the clay season, and he didn't really bring that in that, in that clay season. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, it definitely did stink, you know, because Dominic Team was a person that a lot of people had high hopes for. You know, they wanted to, him to be like the face of the next gen. They were a little bit afraid of Sasha Zverev getting that crown. You know, they were sort of ambivalent to Stefano Tsitsipas. So Dominic Team was that person that, you know, was a likable dude that everybody had support for. And overall, th- these past few months, it, it definitely does feel like Dominic Team has not played to the expectations that he should have played based off that US Open win that he played just magnificently in. You know, I mean, that, that U.S. Open win, I mean, look back at those opponents. I mean, it, it was just amazing. And just the journey it took for Dominic team to get and to reach that point of winning at Queens, New York, and at Arthur Ashe Stadium. I mean, it was just amazing to, to see him hoist that trophy uh, with nobody there but himself just enjoying that moment. I mean, that was beautiful. Um, so do I think he can defend it? No. But I'm not counting him out. You know, I do. I don't think he's going to lose in a decided way. I don't think he's going to uh, lose in a in like a more spectacular way. I think I should say. I don't. I don't think he's going to lose that way. I think it's going to be quite close. But I, I just don't see him defending it because not only is Novak Djokovic back, uh, not only is you know Roger Federer you know going to compete for it, but also you have Rafa Nadal. You know, it's not like that depleted roster that we had in the Corona time. You know, we do have other players that, you know, are willing to step up for the U.S. Open and are willing to, uh, you know, go for uh, go for wins uh, now and again against Dominic Team. So, again, like, while I don't think he's going to win necessarily, I do think he's going to compete. And who knows? You know, he could reach the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. I could be wrong. But overall, I do think that he has the ability uh, to succeed. And as long as he, you know, has that belief in himself, then he can go as far as he can, you know. Um, but I have noticed this trend with Dominic Team that ever since he won the U.S. Open, and while he has been playing bad, ever since he's been playing bad, like, even though his stock has been dropping, 
Joker's stock uh, stock has been rising, and it that is the reason why I'm a little cautious with Dominic Team because while I do see him regressing, he does have the best win loss record against the big three amongst his contemporaries. You know, when you think of Sitsipas, Verev, when you think of Kaspar Rude, you know, that we'll get into later with his Nordia open win. You know, when you think of these players that are in the in the current in the next gen, Dominic Team has the best win loss record against the big three. And he's done pretty amazing throughout. Um, so Dominic Team is somebody that you should not count out. You know, I I kind of I kind of don't think he can defend it, but I'm not going to count him out fully. So I think that's what a lot of people should believe in. And honestly, I do think that, you know, these next few AT- ATP tournaments are going to be important. You know, watch out for the City Open, the Rogers Cup, the Western Southern Open. I think these sort of smaller tournaments, these ATP 500, ATP 1000 tournaments, will get you a better picture as to what you can fully expect from Dominic Team at the U.S. Open. So go check those out as well. That will be happening within a month or so. So that's sort of my opinion. Can Dominic Team defend the U.S. Open title? I don't think so, but I'm not counting him out. You know, I think you should always have that respect and understand the resilience of tennis players as they progress onto these few matches and they, you know, sort of put themselves into these scenarios, not only by, you know, match by match, but more specifically point by point as well. So that's where my uh, headspace is at when it comes to Dominic team and if he's able to be successful at the U.S. Open because... Frankly, uh, it is pretty marvelous that he was the first person within his uh, generation to win a major. I mean, that's just amazing. You know, a lot of people thought it would be the Greek. A lot of people thought it would be the German. It's the Austrian. You know, that's the dude. And not many people had that foresight going into that U.S. Open. And I'm sure not a lot of people have that foresight going into this year's U.S. Open. So I think that's going to be very important to see. Uh, it's just the overall matriculation if he's able to get out of that headspace that sort of put him in that sort of downward spiral uh, of just losing in matches that he just should not be losing in. Uh, so, yeah, that's overall, overall my opinion on it. And it's going to be interesting. You know, I mean, once I know the Delta variant is, you know, scaring a lot of people, but I, it's not. it should not scare you if you got vaccinated. If you got that, those two shots, you, I don't think you should be scared of the Delta variant. I think we're still going to be having tennis. A lot of people are scared. You know, tennis Twitter is scared. I mean, they're always scared. Uh, but overall, I, I, I think we're still going to have these opens. I think we're still going to have majors. I think we're still going to have audience members. Uh, professional sports has definitely taken a hit in terms of ticket sales. I mean, a lot of these professional sporting events make their money through ticket sales. And um, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with the Olympics. You know, I I think you do need the fan factor in it. Uh, But I, I for one, don't think uh, that a Delta variant will deter people from watching sports live or make organizers of of sporting events uh, play with no fans. I I just don't think that will happen. Uh, That's just my vaccine minute here. Uh, anyways, um, I, I thought I should just get that out of the way because I knew that a lot of people uh, were a little bit scared, especially uh, outside of the U.S. about whether or not there will be, there will be the U.S. Open because obviously the variant is scaring U.K. and whatnot, uh, which I completely understand. Don't get me wrong. I think that's a very important point to raise, and I think uh, overall that's something that should be addressed. But, over, uh, but I do think uh, that we have nothing to fear, honestly. I, I think that if you're... If you are able to play, and if you got vaccinated, then I don't think you should be very much scared of, about the Delta variant. In fact, the CDC aligns with my with me, so I, I don't 
we might get a booster shot because of the variant. I mean, that's what Pfizer wants. So I'm pretty sure if Pfizer wants that, we'll probably get, we'll probably do what Pfizer tells us to do. Because, uh, you know, they're Pfizer, you know. Anyways, let's get into Stefanos Tsitsipas 1 in coaching in tennis. So on Sunday, uh, uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas decided to lit the tennis Twitter world on fire or the t uh, tennis world on fire as he tweeted out his support for coaching. So if you guys don't know, uh, Stefano Sitspas uh, basically uh, tweeted out something short but sweet where he said, coaching on every point should be allowed in tennis. The sport needs to embrace it. We're probably one of the only global sports that doesn't use coaching during the play. Make it legal. It's about time the sport takes a big step forward. And Matt Rackett, Matthew Willis, which I highly respect and I highly regard, one of the few people on Twitter that I can really stomach. Go check him out if you haven't. Uh, at Matt Rackett. The only relevant question, he basically tweets out, the only relevant question here is how to ensure this doesn't become a massive competitive advantage for the wealthier elite athletes. The live access to world-class coaches and in-play statistical insights for the top 10 is very different to the, top, to, to the number 250 in the world. So this is just my overall opinion on this. Is Stefano Sitzpas right on coaching? I think so. I think so. I'm a little bit neutral on this. I tweeted out my support on Sunday. And now that I hear more and more people say the opposition or the uh, uh, the other take on it or the other spin to it, I understand where they're coming from as well. I'm sort of moderate on this issue, but I'm leaning towards Stefano Sitsipas' side. And I'm leaning towards Steph's side, not because of what he uh, brings up, which is making it legal because, uh, you know, it's you know, we should embrace it and whatnot. I think we should embrace it because, frankly, I think it adds to the product. I think it adds for, for viewers. You know, when I watch the UFC and when I see John Anik and Joe Rogan take it to the coach's corner and when you're able to hear valuable insight of these coaches to their fighters, it just elevates the product. I love hearing uh, the in-game dynamic of it. You know, I really love to hear the coaching and the ability to hear the advice that the coaches give to their players and i just think it's amazing you know when you see the labor cup with McEnroe and borg you know when you're able to see them talk to their players when you're able when you when you see McEnroe talk to jack sock and talk him out of the the regression that he's been seeing on on that court or when you hear McEnroe talk to shapovalov i think that really adds to something you know if anything i think it elevates the sport to new heights and allows you know fans to get a a better understanding and better breakdown of the sport because I'm pretty sure that a lot of new fans coming to the sport don't really know the scoring system of tennis or don't really know the ins and outs, the ebbs and flows of the sport. So I think in that regard, I think it actually is insightful and important because I do think that coaches give you a better understanding of the sport than, say, the announcers. Not, you know, crapping on the announcers. I just think that, you know, the in-game dynamic uh, and allowing the coaches to have a better understanding of the players because they are coaching them. After all, I think that does give you a better understanding of the sport than say, you know, no disrespect to anybody, but then say like an announcer doing it, you know. So I think in that regard, I would say that, you know. But at the same time, while I do disagree, well, I don't really uh, agree with Matt Racket. I understand where he's coming from. You know, I do think that there are definitely advantages towards your game when it comes to being wealthier, you know, when it comes to um, in-play statistical insights, you know, because of the fact that top 10 players do have a better advantage than, say, the number 250s in the world. But I think the way you address inequality within the sport is not by, you know, get rid of coaching or not add coaching. I think 
the way you get rid of inequality in the sport is to make tennis rackets cheaper. You know, it's to make sporting tennis lessons cheaper. It's to make sure that the barrier of, of entry into the sport is more affordable for the working class individual. I don't necessarily believe that, you know, not adding coaching uh, will sort of give this advantage between rich and poor athletes, you know, because if you look at the UFC, for instance, there are times where the best athletes often get crushed. You know, nobody thought, I mean, some people did, but a lot of people were in favor of Conor McGregor beating Habib Nurmagomedov. But Habib shocked him because he was able to go to the ground and do what he does best, which is, you know, be great with his Kimuras. And I think a lot of these players, even if they have coaching, just don't have that it factor. And when I mean it factor, it's by making adjustments on the court to that other style. And I don't think coaches, while they can give advice and insight, it's up to the players as to whether or not they want to commit to that insight, whether they want to commit to that advice. So in my opinion, I understand where Matt Rackett's coming from. I understand where Matthew Willis is coming from. And a lot of people, not just Matthew Willis, had that same opinion. Uh, but at the same time, you just can't get rid of on-the-court play. And it's up to the players as to whether or not they want to listen to the coach's corner. Because let me tell you, there are a lot of times where I'm listening to the UFC, and when I see fighters not take the advice of their coaches, and oftentimes it does go their way, but most oftentimes it doesn't. Uh, and... You know, even if they do listen to their advice, whether it's calf kicks or go for the ground or go for takedowns, there are times where they do that and they still lose. So, I mean, again, we don't really know. I mean, I don't think we've really seen coaching at that at the professional level like this, like Stefano Sitzbos is is proposing. But I do think that it will add to the sport. And overall, I think, you know, I, I did say this. Tennis is a sport that is resistant to change, and any change added to the sport is often met with hatred and wide disapproval. And I think coaching allows the sport to change and to be more understanding of having a working class coalition that can support the sport and to make that sport thrive. You know, I mean, when you look at soccer, I mean, the average soccer fan is not, you know, into golf or tennis or say i mean obviously there are overlaps i'm not you know saying that there aren't fans of both sports but overall you know the average sport, uh, soccer fan the average sports fan football fan i mean it's not you know a person that you know grew up in a vacation home in the hamptons you know it's not that it's it's a person that has working class roots and i don't think that we're really seeing that in tennis that much you know i mean when you see tennis it's a very sort of insular sport it's a very sort of affluent sport where people that can afford the best tennis lessons and can uh, get the best, you know, sneakers and rackets are often the ones, uh, and obviously loving parents and also forceful parents that force their kids to play the sport. Those are the athletes that get the best overall uh, ability to win and thrive within the sport. So I think coaching is something that can allow, in my opinion, can allow those younger players, working class people to get a better understanding of that sport. So you know, and again, I, I mentioned this just previously, you know, the sport of tennis needs change because, and this may be, you know, a hyperbole, you know, I, I might be sort of fast forwarding this, but I do think that once the big three leaves tennis, if tennis does not properly plan for the future of the sport, it could be on its deathbed, viewership wise. I mean, I think tennis is a legacy, a legacy sport. It will always be there. Golf is still there. I don't know how golf is still succeeding despite Tiger not playing. I think Tiger really elevates that sport. But 
tennis will be on its deathbed if they don't properly plan for tennis after the big three. So they have to be more invested in the product and they need to allow fans to be more invested because if they don't, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult to bring those same fans back. You know, so there has to there have to be changes made within the sport while, while you are still on top. And, you know, obviously this device will be heard by no one, but I do think that it's something important that at least needs to be addressed because obviously we don't want this sport to die. I love the sport. You love the sport if you're listening. So, yeah, um, I think coaching, while it's not the be all end all, I do think it's a it's a step in the right direction to assimilate more and more people into a sport that they had no idea about. Because I'll be honest with you, I learned a lot about the UFC hearing the coach's corner, like a lot. I I learned a lot about the importance of the stand-up game, but also more importantly, the ground game, the ability to, you know, put to get a takedown, the ability to have a clinch near, near the, uh, near the, yeah, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? I'm I'm still learning the the sport of UFC. Uh, That, that's, yeah. I, when you listen to a few episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast, you too will also be into the UFC. So anyways, anyways, let's get into on-the-court tennis news. The Nordia Open final happened uh, yesterday, filming this on a Monday, between Casper Ruud and Federico Correa. So if you guys haven't checked it out, Casper Ruud beat Federico Correa 6-3, 6-2 in a pretty one-sided match, if i got to be honest with you. I mean, throughout its runtime, it was only like an hour or 21 minutes it felt like uh you know like an obscure art house horror movie uh it had the runtime of that and Casper Ruud it did feel like a art house horror movie for Federico Correa because Casper Ruud was just scaring him the entire match i mean Casper Ruud was really great i mean Casper Ruud is great at clay i know a lot of people had a dark horse contender for Casper Ruud heading into the french open and while he never he didn't really win in the french open he he uh, i think reached the third round of the french open Reached the semifinal of Monte Carlo with a loss to Rublev. Uh, reached the semifinal of Madrid uh, with a loss to Berrettini. Or quarterfinal, I think. No, semifinal. And Correa reached the third round but lost to quarterfinalist Berrettini. So, um, and I think the Madrid Open. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. I mean, you had Correa, who was okay. Uh, Casperud, who was a dark horse for the French Open. Uh, heading into this match, Casperu was just amazing at the serve, but also really great at the ba- break. I mean, as you can tell, he won in straight sets. So obviously, he he was great at both sides of the ball, both sides of the court, both sides of the serve. And overall, it was just a dominating fashion for Casperu. Casper's uh, win, in my opinion, was essentially a celebration of a year of almost almost being able to win the Madrid Open, almost being able to win the Monte Carlo Open final, almost progressing past certain opponents early in the stages of the French Open. It was a celebration of an almost of those previous ATP 1000 tournaments. And that was sort of the overall takeaway, you know, when he saw Casper popping a champagne, it, it was bittersweet for Casper because you just know how much this meant to him. You know, and, you know, when you see Casper Ruud during the Nordia Open, he very had a very similar showing to that of Stefano Tsitsipas at the Barcelona Open Final, where he didn't drop a set throughout his entire run at the Nordia Open. And when you see Casper uh, playing aggressively at the baseline, you know, that sort of gave you a taste as to what we can expect, not only within the next hardcourt season, but also in the clay season as well. 
you know, so I think that's a very great thing that Casper was able to do was be able to isolate Korea into just hitting straight to his baseline, straight to the baseline, and not allowing Korea to get to the net, uh, which definitely Federico Korea could have definitely added some variation to, to his game, but that just wasn't there for Korea as Casper was able to just isolate him to just being at his baseline and just targeting him from there on. So obviously, Casper was able to win 6-3, 6-2, Congrats to Kasparud. Uh, I didn't watch the ATP Newport. I'm sorry. Uh, I just, I just didn't feel like it. Honestly, like I wanted to hit, see clay. You know, some clay court action. You know, I just wanted to see that. Um, but congrats to whoever won the ATP Newport. I think it was Anderson uh, who won. But uh, I can check it out right now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, overall, I like, really enjoyed it. You know, it's always interesting to see clay uh, after the grass season because you know, obviously, that's something that yeah, it was Kevin Anderson. Uh, so yeah, overall, uh, congrats to Kasparud for the win. So that's where that's where I'll end it with Kasparud. All right, so let's get into news outside of the tennis world. So Bill Burr trashed CNN for its Trump coverage, and it was hilarious. Uprox basically gave a rundown. I, some people say it's a hit piece. I don't really think it's a hit piece. I, I think it was uh, describing what was happening, what was going on. Uh, Bill in Uprox, I'm just quoting this from from Uprox. So whoever wrote this Uprox article, uh, I'm giving credits to you. Bill Burr is not holding back his thoughts on CNN during the latest episode of his Monday morning podcast. The comedian completely blasted the cable news network for its recent coverage of Donald Trump by claiming that CNN wants him back. They want Darth Vader to come back, Burr said uh, via media late. After catching a glimpse of CNN's coverage thanks to his mother-in-law who watched the station while visiting, they want him to come back because they have nothing to talk about because it's a show business and Joe Biden is a effing bore. Uh, according to Burr, the effing morons at CNN can't stop boosting Trump for ratings while they act like they have allegedly don't like him. And it's going to repeat this 2016 election. He then unloaded all, on all of the corporate news channels their effing treasonous un-American pieces of crap, just like Fox News, MSNBC, just like all of them, just like all of them. Obviously, I hold back some expletives, but uh, overall, go check out that clip. Monday Morning Podcast is obviously one of the be- better podcasts I listen to. Um, if you like Tim Dillon, uh, you'll definitely love Bill Burr. Uh, and I'm pretty sure if you've heard Bill Burr, you probably heard Tim Dillon. Uh, it's on my uh, you know, recommendations, in, in terms of my channel recommendations on my main podcast channel. So go check it out if you haven't. Uh, and usually when I see websites quote comedians... They often take it out of context. They try not to make it funny. They try to like ruin and like delegitimize their careers. I mean, look at Shane Gillis with his remarks on Asians like two years ago uh, when he was hired for SNL. But even when you take Bill Burr out of context, he is still funny. Like he is by far very funny, even when you try and take him out of context, because I can tell uh, that the Uproxx article definitely does feel like they kind of took him out of context. But he was still funny regardless and it's a testament to how great he is you know when you see bill burr you know having these opinions i mean it just kind of proves that he is the best working comic working right now i mean some people may say Chappelle, and obviously you know all hail to Chappelle. i think he's a great comic uh but as of this moment in time i think bill burr hasn't beat and you know quotes like these you know uh him trashing not only cnn but also the legacy media in general I think that's just amazing to see him trash the establishment media for just, you know, uh, you know, highlighting Trump, uh, even though he's not in office. I think that's a pretty good point that Bill Burr raises, you know, and it's quite evident that most of these news channels 
are dying and they are craving for any news on Donald Trump because they want to go back to a time where they want to go back to their channels and that had okay ratings. While they may not have great ratings, they had okay ratings. I mean, obviously, people being stuck home in the coronavirus pandemic, having, you know, the ability to listen to CNN while also typing away at their computer, you know, typing up on an Excel spreadsheet or on a uh, Google Doc or, you know, putting in code into a computer. Obviously, that definitely does help their ratings because it allows people to watch uh, their programming, you know, and obviously, you know, they need Trump, you know, because they recognize that Trump is not a threat to the system. You know, he may have been a threat in 2016 when he ran because he gave, you know, right wing populist ideas, you know, such as ending endless war and, you know, cracking down on immigration and whatnot. So, you know, you know, focusing on a right wing populist platform. But over the next four years, he basically what essentially happened was he was basically a con artist. You know, I mean, for four years, he, you know, went to Jared Kushner and he went to his buddies at Goldman Sachs. And he allowed John Bolton to be his head of security. You know, he allowed Mike Pompeo and the same, you know, people that he often critiqued and during his 2015, 2016, uh, you know, run, he allowed those same people to take the White House. And he continued this neoliberal sort of regime that was there since Reagan, you know, I mean, so, you know, there the news channels are want to talk about Trump. They want to talk about Trump. They want to talk about Donald Trump because they realize that he's not a threat to the order. He was just a part of a larger system, you know. So that's why they have no problem highlighting Trump. You know, there there's a reason why they don't they don't want to talk about Bernie Sanders or Tulsi Gabbard or you know maybe not Andrew Yang because Andrew Yang was a CNN anchor. Uh, but you know there's a reason why they don't want to host Tulsi Gabbard. They want to disparage Bernie Sanders like they did throughout their 2020 election runs. You know there is a reason. You know and obviously Bill Burr is right on this. You know he's right on money. And I saw a lot of people on the right, you know, sort of highlighted and say like, yeah, you know, he's one of us, you know, and I'm like, did he read the full article? Because he goes right after Fox News and Fox News is no different than CNN. I mean, it's just a channel that obviously is, you know, believes in the same political ideas as they do. They may just mask it under the under the culture war, but overall, it's just same old, same old status quo. Uh, and that's basically what both those news channels and MSNBC have. It's just continuing the status quo, you know, and using culture war to sort of rip people apart, which I think is disgusting. You know, I, I think that's a very bad way of looking at the world. You know, and if you really want to know how bad like CNN is doing, Brian Stelter, uh, not only did he get yelled by like Michael Wolf or Richard Wolf yesterday on Sunday uh, on a show Reliable Sources, not only did he get, get yelled at Richard Wolf, but around like the past year or so, Brian Stelter had a fill-in host because Brian Stelter like was on vacation or whatnot. And Brian Stelter's fill-in host had better ratings than Brian Stelter. That that shows you just how low CNN is right now. I mean, it really does. I mean, Brian Stelter's fill-in host had better ratings than Brian Stelter. So, I mean, that just shows you just how right Bill Burr is and just how much on the money he is when it comes to him trashing CNN. And not only that, but I saw a lot of people on Twitter. Obviously, you had definitely some people that were outraged by it, which Twitter being outraged, like that's anything new. But you, I saw a lot of people on on Twitter, you know, actually being supportive of Bill Burr, and they actually was very supportive of him. I, I think that's amazing to see. You know, I think, you know, to see more and more people, you know, actually like like Bill Burr, I think that's amazing. You know, so overall, Bill Burr is right. You know, when he trashes CNN, and you know, if anything. 
I, I Bill Burr is just the goat. In my opinion, he's the best com- comic working, as I've said previously. And uh, you know, I, I think CNN needs to take a look at itself in the mirror, and all those anchors and all those people, and they got to be like, what are we doing wrong? Why does why do regular working class people don't trust us? And Bill Burr stated correctly. So hopefully they they think about that when they sleep with their donor money. All right, so I, I think that's good. I think I, I got my uh, thing out there anyways. Uh, okay, let's get into something pretty laughable. Uh, I'm not going to lie, this is really, really ra- laughable. Uh, and it almost feels like a Mad TV sketch. Almost. Uh, I was going to say SNL sketch, but Mad TV is more apt uh, for this next story. George W. Bush says at the Afghanistan withdrawal is bad. So on Wednesday... George W. Bush, yes, the George W. Bush, yes, the pro-Guantanamo Bay, yes, the pro-Patriot Act, yes, the shipping out millions of American manufacturing jobs to help out the country of China, the Communist Chinese Party, yes, the same George W. Bush that gave us the worst recession, yes, the same George Bush that gave us two wars that we're still technically currently fighting in, that same George Bush said that the Afghanistan withdrawal is bad because of threats to women and children in the area. I want a golf clap for this man. Like, I love just how naive this man is. I love how he's able to shake it off and how he tries to endear himself to the common folk, even though even though the common folk absolutely despise him. I mean, let's be honest with you. Uh, George W. Bush saying that the Afghanistan war withdrawal is bad because it affects the women and the, ch- and the children in the area. And my overall opinion is, really, really, this is this going this is going to hurt women and children in the area. If anything, I think U.S. occupation hurts women and children in the area. I mean, think about the amount of trafficking that exists because of our involvement. Think about the amount of money laundering and how it fills the pockets of private defense contractors and oil companies to extract to extract natural resources and to nation build uh, i mean honestly like i do think that this is really bad this is i mean george w bush defending the afghanistan war i think that's horrible and that's abysmal and honestly i expect i expect nothing less or nothing much or nothing less of george w bush at this point he is one of the worst presidents of all time and him having this verbiage and him spewing this out uh does not uh uh, con- uh, go against that claim. I mean, he is one of the worst presidents. It's hard to rank him. Uh, I would say Buchanan, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Um, I don't know. I don't know who else. Bush, uh, Andrew Johnson, obviously, Reagan. Uh, I don't know. I I think uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton. I I think those are like top five, top six worst presidents of all time that I can think of at the top of my head. Obviously, there probably are worse. Uh, but off the top of my head, those are like the top six or seven. Uh, so yeah, I mean, d- definitely, I think this is just horrible uh, that George W. Bush is defending because obviously it's his baby. You know, I mean, he's the he was a person he was the president in office when he made the Afghanistan war. Um, you know, I mean, all all the people that were in his office uh, should be you know prosecuted for war crimes. You know, Cheney, Rums. I mean, Rumsfeld's dead, but. Uh, you know, rice, everybody. I mean, they were, they all created one of the biggest, you know, they lived up to the word neoconservatism. You know, that's what he got from George W. Bush, a person that combined neoliberal domestic policy with neoconservative foreign policy. And when I say neoconservative, I mean, he was a very neoconservative 
person. I mean, you, he really valued the importance of spreading democracy overseas. Uh, and, and that that is just disgusting. You know, I, if you're going to fight, demo, if you're going to bring democracy overseas, don't just do it through genocide. Don't just do it through, you know, targeting and bombing innocent civilians. You know, don't do that. If you're, if you're going to, you know, spread democracy, do it. I mean, look at China right now. I'm, I'm not defending China whatsoever. But when you look at China and say, wow, they haven't really been in a war since 1978. Most of their working class people live in pretty nice economic conditions. There, there's no sort of poverty whatsoever. And yeah, I'm not defending China. Obviously, I do think China is horrible. But when you see what America is doing right now compared to what China is doing, I mean, China has us beat. I mean, and we have nothing to blame but the elites. And George W. Bush is a clear example of a person that essentially uh, essentially led what Christopher Latch would say, a revolt of the elites on the portrayal of the working class. And that is what I would describe George W. Bush. And obviously, it does, it does you know, I, you, you, obviously it's expected that he would defend the Afghanistan war, but to say it under progressive ideology. I mean, if he said this 20 years ago, like, oh, we need to fight for the women and children, uh, he would probably be booed by the Christian right. But I don't know. You know, I see liberals, you know, supporting George W. Bush on this, and I, I just don't like it. I, I thought Bush was a worse president than Donald Trump, you know, and words like this definitely prove the point. So oh, he's a bad person, man. He's a bad, bad person, you know. Um and that it just goes to prove just goes to show that you know the presidents really don't have any power you know what really matters is how you delegate that power and when you give cheney rumsfeld the keys to your foreign policy it's going to hurt you you know when you give condoleezza rice the ability to be secretary of state when you you know allow, allow a bunch of these you know pnac individuals within your regime then it's going to definitely lead to neoconservative thought behind it you know, so that's overall my opinion on uh, George W. Bush uh, saying the Afghanistan withdrawal is bad because it's just laughable at this point. Um, and just goes to show you just how inept George W. Bush is at connecting to anybody from any sphere from both the left and the right. I mean, George W. Bush will always be one of the worst, if not the, the worst president in my lifetime. And it's going to be hard to really uh, succeed or be worse than George W. Bush, but there probably will be somebody uh, on the left or on the right that probably will be just as bad, if not worse, than George W. Bush. So yeah, that's just my overall spiel and rant on George W. Bush. Uh, anyways, let's get into Jen Psaki, Joe Biden. Uh, so if you guys didn't watch, Joe Biden and Jen Psaki uh, on Friday, basically Jen Psaki on Friday, I would say, in a White House press briefing, stated that accounts on Facebook that spread misinformation should be banned on all social mediums. Not just on Facebook, but all social media accounts should be banned if they spread misinformation. And Joe Biden actually, uh, when a, a White House reporter asked Joe Biden, what do you think, uh, what do you think about Facebook? Uh, uh, Joe Biden went back to the reporter and said, they're killing people. They're killing people. And he was obviously alluding to COVID. And this is just my opinion on Jen Psaki and Joe Biden. Uh, more so Joe Biden than Jen Psaki. I have nothing against Jen Psaki. Uh, he's just, she's just a person that, you know, lies to the press uh, whenever they can and, you know, sh schmoozes her way into being well-liked by the press, which I think is really bad. Uh, I don't think you should be friends. Uh, I don't think the media should be friends with Jen Psaki. If anything, they should just ask harder and harder questions about things that Joe Biden has yet to do 
and his time in office. I think that's a way better time. I think that's time better spent than just say schmoozing it up with Jen Psaki. I mean, uh, I would never schmooze it up with Jen Psaki. I mean, that's disgusting. Uh, but here's just my overall opinions uh, on the misinformation that they allege is on Facebook. I think it's disgusting. I think it's abhorrent. And just this, this goes to show that anybody that deviates from the status quo is going to be silenced. And you see that from, you know, Jen Psaki's comments and Joe Biden's comments, you know, and when you see them going after people that spread misinformation or whatever they may say about it, you know, this is a violation of our First Amendment rights and our, and more importantly, and above all, our Bill of Rights and, you know, the, the luxury that we have as American citizens. You know, I see a lot of people on the right criticizing Chinese companies for stealing our data and selling it to our government. Well, what do you think um, the Ameri- uh, uh, Facebook and all these people in, in, in power do? I mean, it's quite obvious that people within private business, you know, do merge with government. And that's something that not only libertarians have to answer for, because I see a lot of libertarians, uh, you know, defending private business, which is a little weird in, in this scenario, because you should treat Facebook and Twitter and social media as public utilities instead of, you know, private businesses because they do collaborate with the government. But this is something that is a problem for liberals and, and Republicans. You know, for liberals, they want to ban free speech, all, all speech or censor speech that doesn't align with their ideas. With Republicans, they want to ban speech that, you know, doesn't fit within their culture war issues. And to be honest with you, I think they're both wrong. I think we need to view these companies, uh, you know, accountable and hold these, uh, you know, companies accountable and let people actually say what they want. You know, I, I don't think, uh, you know, banning people for having the wrong opinion or for saying certain things that don't align with, you know, what Pfizer or Big Pharma one, I don't think that does anybody any, any well. I just don't, you know, and, and let's be honest here. You know, when you see, you know, the government saying, oh, we're going to crack down on misinformation, the government has lied to us Many times. I mean, think about Iraq with WMDs. They said Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and there were none. You know, I mean, Donald Trump went after one of the best lines that Donald Trump went after Jeb Bush was when he said, your brother lied us into war. They, he said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none. And a World Trade Center went down because of it. And, and he was right when he said that at the, South, at the South Carolina primary against Jeb Bush. And, you know, the government lies to us. Uh, on a lot of instances i mean you, you can look back at like you know the gulf of tonkin you know i mean there are times where the government lies us into war or for to strip away of our civil liberties i mean it's pretty you know well known that you know certain alphabet agencies do that you know they allow things to occur that you know restrict us from having our rights from restricting us from doing things that were once normal you know so I think Jen Psaki is wrong on this. I think Joe Biden is wrong on this. You know, I, I think, you know, anybody that deviates from what they are, what they want, I, I think will be viewed as a as an enemy. I, I just don't think that's a good way of going at things. You know, I think we should allow individuals to say what they truly believe and what they truly want. And, you know, again, like we have to stop. Reali- we have to realize that a lot of these people that they're going after are not people in power. They're not people in positions of power. They're just working class people. You know, they're people that are just trying to make a living. They may work at warehouses. They may work at, you know, Amazon. They may work at, you know, in the service industry. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to realize that these are these are individuals that are just, you know, trying to give out and ch- and like show like what they truly believe in. And you can't really go after them for for having an opinion that's different from you, you know, or, or having or having a belief that may be different from you. 
So I, I, I think they were wrong on this one. I, I mean, I, do, I really do. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where nobody wins in this scenario. I mean, nobody wins, you know. I, the left, the right, at the end of the day, I saw, I remember seeing this thing in the past month or so where Joe Biden said, who, like, basically Joe Biden, like, had, like, something, or the FBI, CIA, whoever it is, had, like, this letter that they deemed anybody who was outside of the establishment norm, like, socialist, communist, right-wing populist, libertarians, I mean, libertarians made the cut, anybody uh, could be viewed as an enemy to the United States. I think they had that uh, in, like, one of those papers. Uh, honestly, I'm not really that well aware of it but go check it out if you haven't they basically released like a like a briefing about it a short let like a basically a letter about like what they may view as a potential threat to the u.s and when they had that and when they released it i was really mad because it at the end of the day we should build you know coalitions we should you know find ways to unite you know we should find ways to set aside our political ideology and ideas and just find ways to be more communicative about what we truly believe and agree to disagree. And, you know, I don't think Jen Psaki is doing that. You know, I, I think, if anything, the the creation of social media has actually neutered uh, the ability to have differences of thought and opinion. And when you see Facebook cracking down on left-wing accounts and right-wing accounts, it definitely does lead to more turmoil and more division amongst users on any sites and, more importantly, of our world as, as well. So... I'm not with Jen Psaki and Joe Biden on this. I think it's quite quite wrong what they're doing. But anyway, that's just my opinion on it. And uh, let's get into, now that I got the political stuff out of the way, the tennis stuff out of the way, let's get into my weekly pick. So if you guys didn't, don't know, every Tuesday I recommend an album, a piece of art, a film that I truly enjoy, that I think you guys will enjoy as well, sometimes a book as well. Uh, and I'll get you... I'll tell you why I'm recommending this album for us, but let me just give you a little bit of a backstory as to how I got into this uh, person. So I got into this musician through his first album, Room for Squares. I thought the album was really good. It sounded like a John Hughes movie. It was very colorful, very bright and vibrant, and it really had a lot of colors, and I visualized a lot of colors. Uh, I'm kind of cringy to say this, but it definitely did feel like a John Hughes movie, and I really enjoyed listening to this, uh, to that first album that he re- that he released. He also released other other albums after that, Heavier Things, Continue On, which are great listens if you haven't uh, checked them out yet. And obviously, there were albums that he released after that that I didn't really enjoy. But anyways, I, I enjoyed those first three albums that he released because that's that's when he was at his best, in my opinion. And I believe that he's genuinely talented. I really do. You know, and when you see him work with Chappelle, when you see him you know, work with other uh, artists and collaborate with artists like Mac Miller and Thundercat, you really see that he is a very talented individual. And there are times where his personal life does overshadow his work. I mean, he will be the first one to admit that. Um, But I listened to this single, to a single called New Light. I think he released it in 2019. And again, it was just amazing. It was, it had this pure vibe to it. And he released his new album, his eighth studio album, I heard it. It's amazing. And that's why for this weekly pick, uh, my recommendation for you will be John Mayer's Sob Rock. That will be my recommendation for you. It's a very good, it's a good album. Not a great album. You know, it's not the best album of this year, but it's a good album. It's a solid album. I enjoyed it. It has a very 80s vibe to it. 
and he promoted it through having these sort of 80s nostalgic-like feel music videos such as New Light and obviously Shot in the Dark, which really had a very 80s sort of George Michael-esque vibe to it. Uh, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but I, I kind of did feel like that. Uh, I didn't grow up in the 80s, by the way. You know, I, I know my uh, my 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 looks may may feel like that, but believe me, I didn't grow up in the 80s. Um, but he did promote it through cassette tapes and having this throwback logo of Columbia Records. So this is, this album does really have an 80s vibe into it uh, to it. So if you if you're going to check this out, uh, make sure like you understand that it may not be as perfectly done as say like a Dua Lipa or a Weekend because I think those artists do have a better understanding of like the 80s and say like this album. But it's an album that you should uh, check out regardless. There are some good songs on this uh, album. Uh, Last Train Home, New Light, uh, Shot in the Dark, I Guess I Just Feel Like, which are definite, definite standout songs. And I really enjoy this album. Not the best album of all time. You know, I'm not going to say that. And not my favorite John Mayer album. I would say it's more Continuum or Room for Squares. I think that's one one and two in terms of my favorite album from favorite album for John Mayer. But it's still a good album regardless. And I think his work with No ID, I think uh, that was definitely an inspiration as well. Uh, and I'm fully expecting a not good from Anthony Fantano. I, I'm, I'm fully expecting the melon to give this a bad review. Uh, and I'm going to live with it because it's my taste. So, I, And again, it's not my favorite album. I would, say, I would still say Ice Ages, Seek Shelter. It's still That's still my favorite album of the year. Uh, but it's you should go check it out if you haven't. Because I really, really, really enjoy this album. And again, you know, you don't listen to John Mayer and be like, oh man, I got to listen to this five, ten times to get what he's talking about. It's like, no, you listen to it to be in a more calming state and more meditative state. And, you know, obviously he does have a lot of inspiration from blues, rock, you know. I mean, he he, he spent some time in Atlanta with with his work with uh, Travis Cook, I think. His, you know, he worked with or Clay Cook, I'm, I'm not so sure. But he definitely was at, at, he was at Atlanta after his stint at Berklee College of Music. Uh, so there's definitely is like a southern inspiration to a lot of his music uh, that I could really hear uh, on his earlier records and also uh, whenever he does release a song or an album as well so John Mayer, Sawbrock, go check it out released it last Friday I'll leave a YouTube link in the description box below on my podcast page I have a few bit of subscribers on my po- on my podcast clips channel I'm trying to uh, divert that into my podcast channel uh, but anyways, John Mayer, Sawbrock, go check it out and that will be all the time i have so guys thank you so much for watching thank you so much for listening make sure you guys like subscribe and click the bell icon for notifications down below if you're watching on youtube make sure you rate and subscribe and review on itunes as well to help spread the word and if you have whatsapp go spread it on your whatsapp as well get people within your circles talking whatever uh and that'll be all the time i have for today so guys thank you so much for watching thank you so much for listening I'll see you guys on Thursday. I have no idea what I'll talk about. There's no tennis. Uh, I might just have to talk about, like, political things, which I'm happy talking about. I don't, I don't care, you know, or societal things, uh, pop culture things. I don't know. I truly don't know. Uh, but it is the OJ Tucker podcast, so expect the unexpected. Uh, anyways, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys on Thursday. All right, guys. Peace. See y'all.